you would, would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 7, and our text this morning will be verses 1 through 10, but then also if you would just put your finger in Genesis chapter 14, verse 17, we'll be looking at both texts this morning. We've already seen the introduction to one of the most perplexing and mysterious figures in all of Scripture, and that is Melchizedek. He's one that stirs up curiosity because there's very little that we we really know about him. In fact, he's only mentioned in the Old Testament twice. And in God's providence in our reading this morning, we read one of the references to him. I didn't plan that we would read Psalm 110 on this day. I just simply have us reading through the Psalms every Sunday, and it just landed on this day in God's providence that we would read Psalm 110 that mentions Melchizedek. And I love it when the Lord does that sort of thing. We actually learn more about Melchizedek in the New Testament than we do in the Old Testament, though the Old Testament gives us all the information we need to understand who he is and how we reach the conclusions of who he is from the book of Hebrews. And so again, he's a man that stirs much curiosity, for he just comes out of nowhere onto the pages of scriptures, and then he just disappears. And when we get to the book of Hebrews, some of that curiosity is even stirred more because we see this argument being made in Hebrews chapter 7 about him and Christ and the relation to one another. And as we read the text, sometimes there's more questions than, than answers that, that come up. And so it becomes fascinating to study this, this person, Melchizedek, and to learn why he's important. But as we begin to look at him this morning and his relation to Christ, we need to know this is not just merely a historical lesson on this shadowy figure. But we have to remember that the book of Hebrews was written to hurting Christians. Christians facing persecution. Christians that were suffering. It was written to Christians considering, tempted, to abandon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so perhaps that could be familiar to many of us. And so why is Melchizedek important to know for hurting, suffering, and even persecuted Christians. Well, apparently he is. And so that means that for us to study Melchizedek is more than just us learning some interesting facts and chasing some rabbit trails on who this man was, but rather it's for our good and to be comforting to us and to build assurance that our Lord Jesus Christ is our great high priest. In fact, as we look at Melchizedek this morning, it actually... Uh, forces us not to look at Melchizedek, but to look past him and set our eyes upon Christ. We see the introduction of him in chapter 5, in verses 5, where we read this, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. And that is from Psalm 110. And then Paul, 
at that point says, I would like to talk to you in the text of Hebrews. After mentioning Melchizedek, says, I would like to talk more about this guy to you, but I can't because you're not ready. And then in the flow of the text in chapter 6, he begins to encourage them, to exhort them, to give them warnings. And then he circles back around and brings Melchizedek back into the picture in chapter 6 and verse 19, where he writes this, We have this as a sure hope and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And if you have your finger in Genesis, we'll look at verse 14, or chapter 14, excuse me, in verse 17, where he appears in the narrative. And you look at the first portion of the book of Genesis, it's really about the story of Abraham. Melchizedek is not the focus of the, of the text. But he just pops in out of nowhere in verse 17 of Genesis after the story right in the middle of Abraham. We see his presence come. It says this, after his return from the defeat of Chedilomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet with him at the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley in Melchizedek. King of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered you, your enemies, into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's all that's said about him. There's a war that takes place. Abraham meets with the king of Sodom, and out of nowhere comes the king of Salem, Melchizedek. And then he disappears from the pages of Scripture. He's mentioned in Psalm 110, verse 4, that he is a priest forever. And then we come to see him in the book of Hebrews. If we didn't have the book of Hebrews, it's very likely, and it could be likely even here with Hebrews, that you might have never heard of Melchizedek. It might have just been one of the random names that we read in Scripture that are hard to pronounce that we just pass over. But Hebrews stops and spends a great deal of time on this character and his relation to Jesus. And so that brings us to our text this morning in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 7. Let us hear the word of God. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything, he is, first, by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. And then, he is also King of Salem, that is, King of Peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was? 
to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these are also descended from Abraham, but this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of God. And may he bless the reading of it. Verse 1, it connects us to what was previously said with the word for. It connects us to this as a concluding argument as we have read that Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so chapter 7 then goes to explain what is this order of Melchizedek. And we see this text do this in two ways. First, by identifying, giving us the identity of Melchizedek, and then we're going to see the importance of of Melchizedek. So if you can just think of it this way, is his identity and then his importance. And that's what the text is going to teach us. So Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek. And this for that we see, for this Melchizedek, is introducing why this is important to tell us who he was. So let's look at who he was. What is his identity? Well, first he's identified as king of Salem. And king of Salem is actually Jerusalem. And it is Jerusalem, the city of peace. Now, why is Jesus after the order of Melchizedek? Because we know that Jesus comes from the line of Abraham through the line of Judah. According to the flesh, a descendant of David. So how could he be of the order of Melchizedek if he's from David? And we've already seen that Melchizedek is off over here. Well, when David conquered Jerusalem from the Jebusites, he became the king of Jerusalem. And when he became king of Jerusalem, he inherited all that would have been rightfully Melchizedek's kingdom. He then is the rightful heir, and Jesus then is the rightful heir and the order of Melchizedek because he is the king, the true king, the forever eternal king of Jerusalem. Jesus takes on the role that David had taken as king, but an eternal king. Jesus is the promised son of David, who was the king and also a priestly king. So Jesus is of this line, this king of Salem. That is how he could be in that line. But king of Salem just means what we would think of today as Jerusalem. 
It says not only was he a king of Melchizedek, but he was also priest of the Most High. This is incredible. Just let this sink in for a second, because we read in the story of Genesis that God calls a people to himself through one man named Abraham. And that's all we see in the rest of the Old Testament is the unfolding of the line of Abraham that leads up and culminates in Christ. But when you're reading the Old Testament, you're reading simply about the children of Abraham culminating in Christ. There's no mention of other tribes. There's no mention of other nations that were called by God. And we've already seen Melchizedek and Abraham are by, not related by blood. So what does this tell us? That God had called other people to himself. That he had called Melchizedek to himself. There was a, a believer in the one true God outside of Abraham. And it's amazing because when you look at that time, Abraham is pulled from a pagan country and said, go to this land. And when we find Melchizedek on the pages of scriptures, he's amongst the Canaanites. He's near Sodom and Gomorrah, which was an infamous city even to this day of licentious behavior. But yet, in the midst of that, here's a man that calls upon the name of Yahweh. Here's a man that is not only calling upon the name of Yahweh, but is a priest of the Most High. In the midst of completely lost people, he's unstained by that which surrounded him. There's something to remember about this, is God always has a people for himself. It's amazing that if you study missions today, missiologists will tell you that the fastest segments of Christianity that are growing right now are not in the West, but in the Middle East. Where you, the, le- the least likely place where you would expect to find a Christian is where Christians are growing the fastest today. The the Lord has his people in in the most unexpected places. There's always a remnant. I think of when Paul goes into Corinth and the Lord says, I want you to stay here because I have people in this city. And what's amazing about that statement is what the Lord was saying is that I have people already chosen to call upon my name and I have chosen you to go tell them so that they will call upon my name. But what is it What we see about that in the most unlikely places like Corinth, the Lord had people that he was calling. The other thing is this is we're never told how Melchizedek comes to call upon the Lord. We're told how Abraham calls upon the Lord. The Lord calls him and speaks to him. We're not told any information like that about Melchizedek. But we have to know that that's how it happened. The Lord revealed himself to this king that he would respond to him and call upon him and to be saved by faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness, just like Abraham. You see, no one has ever been saved apart from God revealing himself to them and them calling upon the Lord by faith. So how did Melchizedek come to know the Lord? The same way you did and the same way I did, by grace through faith. 
in the most unlikely place, you find a man that had trusted in God and was counted to him as righteousness. So he's a priest of the Most High. And then we begin to see the story from Genesis that we read in verse 1. He met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. What is that about? Well, Abraham's nephew Lot, if you are familiar with the story, had been kidnapped by a king, Shedelomar. None of you speak Hebrew, right? Good. Well, this king had four other kings along with him, five total kings went to war. Or excuse me, four, yeah, five kings went to war against four kings. And they took Lot and the king of Sodom hostage and the people from hostage. And so this king, when you think of kings in that time, it, it would be like territories or little, it wouldn't be like a kingdom like you think of like the kingdom of England and how large it was and how it colonized so many places. It wouldn't be like that. It'd be like little territories. And there would be a little king in this place here. It was like that. Well, Lot, Abraham's nephew, is kidnapped. And so what does Abraham do? Well, Abraham raises up an army from within his own home, 318 men, and goes and takes out these kings and brings back his nephew, Lot. He takes back Lot, and as he's returning from defeating these kings, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem come out to meet him. That's a really interesting story because, again, he meets this Melchizedek out of nowhere. Melchizedek was not part of this rescue mission. He was not part of the war that was taking place. He just shows up, and on return from Abraham defeating these kings, Melchizedek comes out and greets him and blesses him. It says this in verse 2. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth, a part of everything. So he pays a tenth of the spoils from the war to this guy. And so Abraham captures all the spoils from war. As Melchizedek meets him, he gives him a tithe. A tithe is just simply a tenth. He gives him a tenth of it. And why does he do that? The answer to the question, why does he do that, is the whole entire point of the text. Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham, the one chosen of God through whom his line of all the nations of the earth would come the Messiah, recognizes that Melchizedek is a mediator between man and God. Let that sink in for a second. Abraham recognizes that Melchizedek is a mediator. That's what a priest is, is a mediator between man and God. And so he gives him a tenth. And we read the blessing that Melchizedek gives him. Let me read it again. Where he says this, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your 
hand. Melchizedek is called of God. He is righteous by faith and is called to be a priest and no explanation is given. And when he blesses him, notice the language that he uses. He actually uses the same language of addressing God as Abraham does. They both refer to God as God Most High. They both refer to God as the creator of the heavens and the earth. How did Melchizedek know that? How did Melchizedek get this information? God had revealed it to him. And so this king blesses Abraham with that blessing. And Abraham responds to him by tithing to him. And he tithed to him because God had done something extraordinary for Abraham by rescuing his nephew Lot. And the proper response to that was to, and listen, this is so important, to give back to God. But he gives back to God through a man. Numbers 18 verse 24 says that a tithe is our contribution to the Lord. So we think about a tithe in this sense is that we could see it on one hand, Abraham giving this material wealth to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek's material wealth increases. But that's not actually what a tithe is. It was something given to the Lord for the purposes of the Lord, And Abraham, the patriarch, the one chosen of God, the one through whom the Messiah will come, sees this man that is a mediator between man and God and then gives him this as a contribution to the Lord. It's amazing because in Abraham's... uh, now, after Abraham's time during the Mosaic period, the people, children of Israel, the children of Abraham would give to the Levitical priest. The Levitical priest was from the tribe of Levi. And specifically, the priests were of the line of Aaron, Moses' brother. That's where they gave their tithes. But Abraham knows this is the proper response And so he gives to the Lord through Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blesses him as God said he would bless him. It's amazing that God said, I will surely bless you. And the actual blessing comes through Melchizedek. After the promise of God saying, I will bless you, the blessing is said to come through then Melchizedek. So he apportioned a tenth, that is, he tithed to him everything. Then begins in verse 2 to tell us who he is. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And if you split his name in half, Melchizedek, the, the Hebrew word for king is Melech, 
So you see that in the name. And then Tezek is the word for righteousness. So his name literally means king of righteousness. And most commentators will note that his name refers to how he ruled. He ruled his kingdom as king of Salem in righteousness. He ruled with righteousness. And again, that's amazing to consider his surroundings where there was a lack of righteousness, where there was only wickedness, God has this one man there that is ruling with righteousness. That's his name, but then we see his position. His position is that he is the king of Salem, that is the king of peace. And Salem is just simply peace, the city of peace. Again, to reference Genesis... Melchizedek was not involved with the war. He was not involved with the rescue mission. He was not. He's just standing off to the, to the side, if you will, as this peaceful king in the city of peace. When we see peace, though, in the New Testament, it usually refers to the peace that is the result of an atoning sacrifice that brings about restoration and communion between God and His people through a mediator. We're beginning to see the correlations between Melchizedek and Christ here. A king of righteousness. A king of peace. A king that receives and blesses. And what should be clear to us is that Melchizedek is the picture of Jesus. Our priest. Our king. He who rules in righteousness and has secured peace, the one through whom we receive blessings, the one who secures our salvation, the one who is of a throne forever, as Hebrews 1.8 says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That is our king. Melchizedek is the picture of that. He was the picture of our king that rules in righteousness and peace. Now I want you to notice verse 3. This is where the controversy begins of Melchizedek and where the debate begins. Although there's very little debate over this today, most people are settled on this. It says this, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither, neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. When you read that passage, that introduces a lot of questions, doesn't it? This has led some to conclude that Melchizedek was actually the pre-incarnate Christ. And what that means is that Sometimes in the Old Testament you will see pictures of Christ come up where Christ appears on the, on the pages of Scripture before His incarnation, before Bethlehem, if you will. And so is that what is taking place here? The reason some take that to mean that Melchizedek was actually the pre-incarnate Christ is because what it says, no father, no mother, no genealogy, no beginning, no end of life. And this is really emphasized in the original language because it just has with the prefix the letter A at the beginning of it. 
which just simply means no father, no mother, no genealogy. It says it in the in, in a negation of him. So does this mean that when we read of Melchizedek, we're actually reading of the pre-incarnate Christ? No. Not at all. In fact, the text does not allow that. The text says, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Resembling means like. It means similar. It means distinct, but definitely not the same. In fact, you see the same word used just by an illustration in James chapter 1, verse 6, where it says this, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like, like, there's the word, like a wave of the sea. We wouldn't apply this to the person here that says, The one who asks in faith without doubting, or the one who doubts is actually literally like the wave of a sea, or is literally a wave of the sea, we would say, no, he's like a wave of the sea. We get the illustration. There's a comparison by two, com- two like things, but they're distinct. So he resembles the Son of God. He is similar to the Son of God, but he's not the Son of God. So what does it mean when we see that he has no father, no mother, no genealogy. Well, there's no mention of his father or mother or genealogy in the book of Genesis, and that's simply what it means. You might think, well, that's not a big deal. Well, it actually is, because Genesis gives us continual genealogical records of pivotal people. So think about it this way. As Melchizedek, there's silence on his genealogy. There's a, it's alarmingly silent on his genealogy in a book where it's common to just give those things actually where the genealogy is always given for those that call upon the name of the Lord. Think about this. Wouldn't that be very odd to not have a genealogical record for the priest of the God Most High? in a book that is full of genealogies? There's another reason that Melchizedek cannot be Christ, and that's because this, a Christophany, again, that's an appearance in the Old Testament of Christ before the Incarnation. If you accepted that Melchizedek was actually just a Christophany and actually Christ, it would be the most unique one in all of Scripture because you... Melchizedek is an established person in history and in time that was an actual king and ruling. So you would have to then accept that this Christophany started from the birth of this king and all the way lasted, all the way until he meets Abraham and then disappears from Scripture. So you would have to believe, if this was a Christophany, that we see a prolonged one from child to adulthood to a king that rules and has authority over people and was known by people for a long period of time. There's no actual example of that in Scripture. It would be unparalleled in Scripture for that to happen. So what do we make of this, that he resembles the Son of God? It means this. Ready? He resembles the Son of God. That's what it means, just as the text says. 
is one like the Son of God. He is a type. And also we see in Scripture something very important in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews has been arguing this whole point from the very first chapter. Jesus is the greater realization of all of the types, whether it's David, or it's Joshua, or it's Moses, or it's the law, or whatever it is, Jesus is greater. It's just continuing the same argument here. So, he is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, which brings us into the importance of Melchizedek. We begin to see this importance of him in verse 4, where we read this, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. The word see means this. It means consider this, to think upon this. And it's in the imperative, which means that he is commanding the readers, the audience of this letter, that you need to stop and reflect upon this fact, how great this man was. The point is, is when we read the biblical narrative, Abraham is super important. We all know who Abraham is. In fact, the three major religions of the world recognize Abraham. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all recognize Abraham. He's known, you could say. He's crucially important. So the text says, you need to consider how great this man, Melchizedek, was to whom Abraham was the inferior to. And the story revolves around Abraham, not around Melchizedek. And so oftentimes we miss the point of his importance. And the importance is this, is that Abraham tithed to him. And from this point comes the point of the book of Hebrews, is this, in verse 5, we start to see the importance unfold. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. God gave the tribe of Levi himself as their portion, They did not receive land, rather they relied on the tithe given to the Lord through them. They were from Abraham and chosen of God to stand before God on behalf of the people. That was the Levites' role. The Levites were uh, were over the worship. And, And just to repeat myself, specifically the sons of Aaron, which also were Levites, were the priests that God called to be the, of the office of the mediator. And we can't emphasize their role enough. God chose that tribe to mediate on his behalf. God chose a, a, a means of mediation and forgiveness and restoration. And it came through these men, the Levites, on behalf of the people. Verse 6 says, But this man who does not have his descent from them 
received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So it says, but this man, that is Melchizedek, he's not from Abraham. He's not a Levite. He was not part of the Mosaic order. He stands before it. He stands outside of it. In some ways, he doesn't have anything to do with it. And yet he received tithes from Abraham, which again means Abraham recognized Melchizedek as superior and as being in a privileged position over him, over Abraham. So the tithe was through was to the Lord through a man. A tithe is simply this, by the way. We know it's 10%. We know it's the contribution to the Lord. But a tithe is a recognition that the Lord owns all that exists. It's not easy to give 10% to something. It's not easy to give away anything, let alone 10%. And so a tithe is a simple recognition of God's people giving back to God to say that you own everything. I'm just called to be a good steward of it. And so a tithe is to simply be a faithful steward of what God has given you. And a tithe is just returning to the Lord a portion what is already His. So what you see here is in this movement of the tithe from Abraham to Melchizedek, Abraham the worshiper gives a tithe to the priest, and the priest is then giving that to the Lord. And then look at what happens. So you see this movement. Worshipper goes to the priest. The priest then goes to the Lord. And then what do we see from that is that God brings the blessing through the priest back to the worshiper. And that's the transaction that's taking place between Abraham and Melchizedek. Abraham, the worshiper, responding to what God has done, gives a portion back to God, and it goes to God through this man, Melchizedek, who's a mediator, and then God blesses Abraham through the priest, Melchizedek, and it comes back then to Abraham. That's the order that it goes in. And so to give to a priest is to recognize their mediatorship. And that's fascinating because Abraham, when he finds out Sodom and Gomorrah is going to be destroyed, what does he do? Does he say, good, God, you need to destroy that wicked place? No, Abraham mediates on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so in some sense, Abraham played the role of mediatorship on behalf of other people with God. But yet, he goes to another and greater mediator. And what do we see? He blessed him who had the promises. So we see that the promise to Abraham of blessing is connected to the blessing that Melchizedek gives him. And so verse 7 makes this all clear. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. And so Melchizedek, then, according to this text, is greater than Abraham. And this point begins to blossom into another point. If Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, he then is greater than the Levitical priesthood. What were these Hebrews in danger of returning back to? The Old Covenant and putting themselves back under a Levitical priesthood. That was their danger. 
That was the temptation. And so the point then is that you're going back to something that is inferior. And then we see a contrast between Melchizedek and the Levitical priest. In verse 8, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in another case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. So notice what it says here is that Melchizedek was one, but the Levites were many. And why were they many? Well, they, they died. They were mortal. Melchizedek is one. He lives. Remember, the text says he has no genealogy. He had no end of life, which is a picture of Christ. And so here's the importance of the Melchizedekian priesthood is this, is that he always lives to make intercession for them. That's speaking of Christ. So when we think about the priesthood of Levi, it's gone. By the way, why do we no longer have priests today? Why don't we have priests today? Because Christ is the final priest that lives forever. The Levite is no longer. Again, Psalm 1 10 verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In verse 9 and 10 it reads, one might even say that Levi himself who receives tithes paid tithes through Abraham for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. And so as Abraham was the representative of his children, it is as if Levi and that entire tribe paid tithes themselves to Melchizedek. Now you can understand the imagery of that idea of a greatness that continues. You can imagine a, a king, let's just say a king of some country, and he has those people that are under him, the son of the king will still be in that high exalted position. And those that were under him and their kids will still be under the king. It just continues generationally. And that's the picture that's being given here. We can understand that type of imagery. And what made a priest a priest of the Levitical order was by birth, but what made Melchizedek priest was by some other different qualification because there's no line of Melchizedek except the order of it being fulfilled in Christ. So this brings me to this question. We could look at that as the introduction. Why is this important for us? Why is it important for us to know all of this information about Melchizedek, the tribes of Israel, Levite, Priestly order. I mean, this audience, they were Hebrews. They would have been familiar with Melchizedek. And in fact, during the first century, there was a lot of talk of Melchizedek. They've discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls mention of his name several times. And so people in the first century were talking about Melchizedek. But you and I probably aren't sitting at our local Starbucks talking about Melchizedek, are we? He doesn't come up in conversation too often. So why is this important to us to know these things? 
We can understand why it would be important in the first century. It was relevant to the first century Jew, but what about us? Well, let me just consider a few things of the text that, that explain why. God promised to bless Abraham, and that blessing was mediated by this priest. Our blessings from God flow from Christ, the fulfillment of that Melchizedekian priestly order. And that blessing comes from Christ to the children of whom? Abraham. You see the connection. In other words, here's what we need to see. Just like the Hebrews of the first century that were thinking about abandoning Christ, that were facing suffering and persecution. If you're in Christ this morning, we are blessed in Christ, our high priest that lives forever. And it means this. Just as we see that he is the order of the priesthood that lasts forever, that is eternal, it means this. Jesus never stops mediating on your behalf. I don't know about you, but I need that. Because I'm sinful. Because I'm a sinner. I need a mediator on my behalf. But what I don't need is another sinful mediator on my behalf. What I don't need is someone that is going to be sinful just like me and is going to die and then not be able to mediate on my behalf. I need one that lives forever and that is perfect, that rules in righteousness and secures peace for his kingdom. That's who I need as my mediator. Don't you see that that's what we have in Christ? That he always lives He ever lives. He is the ancient of days. He never stops mediating on your behalf. That is wonderful news. Why would would I look at going back to my old way of life? Knowing that, that there's there's a high priest that mediates forever. There's something else about this, too, that we see that in this picture of Melchizedek, we actually see a picture of Christ, as we've already stated. And what does it say of Melchizedek? He rules in righteousness. So what does that mean? If that's a picture of Christ, Christ rules in righteousness and rules perfectly. We never, ever have to question whether our king is doing what is right. We never have to question whether the plan of the king is a righteous plan and whether it's a good plan, even when we face suffering, even when we face trials, even when we face persecution. We know our sovereign king is righteous, and he rules in righteousness, and everything he does is righteous. But it's also something else that's amazing about this king of righteousness and why he's so much greater than any other king and any other priest is because all kings die, all priests die, all kings are sinful, all kings die, and 
Our King is eternal and perfect, and He is righteous. And He came and died to offer His own righteousness to us. The righteousness that is applied to Christ, or that we see in Christ, that Christ is righteousness, He actually gives to His people where we lack it. We give Him our sin, and He gives us His perfect righteousness. He is our King of Peace. As Isaiah 9.6 says, that He is the Prince of Peace, which means that this, Jesus secures peace on our behalf. What is peace? Well, peace means this, is that there has been a warring party that has been brought to reconciliation and to restoration. And that warring party is you and I and God. God's wrath upon those that do not believe upon the Son. Christ secures peace between us and God by His atoning sacrifice. That is what brings us peace, and that is what peace is. is reconciliation with God. So far from being irrelevant to us, rather this morning, we ought to do what the Bible says and consider how great this man was. And God gives this word on him to people that were suffering, people that were struggling, people that are just trying to wake up every morning and get to the next day. In other words, this word is for you and I to consider how great this man Melchizedek was, a picture of our Lord and Savior, our King of righteousness, our King of peace, our Savior Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our great King in heaven who rules in righteousness, who is sovereign over all that exist. We thank you that he has secured peace on our behalf, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this picture that we see of Jesus' kingdom in Melchizedek. We thank you for the reminders of the peace that Christ secured on our behalf. As we read through your biblical text, there's so much more here that we could spend the rest of our lives meditating upon. But Father, you have given us a sufficient word for comfort and peace and assurance of our salvation. May we be comforted by your word this morning. I pray for those that may not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would call them, and that they would call upon you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.